Psalm 130, a song of degrees, or a song of ascents, rather. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This Psalm 130 is different from the preceding Psalms of Ascents because instead of dealing primarily with the uh, enemies, the subject of enemies, this psalm deals with one of the spiritual aspects of salvation, especially, of course, the pardon or forgiveness of our sins. It is, of course, with Psalm 132, or rather with Psalm 32, one of the two great psalms about the doctrine of justification by faith that we find in the Psalter. There's one particular feature of this psalm that I want to note before we begin to dig into the uh, particulars of it, and that is the names of the Lord that are found in the psalm. You'll find in the four stanzas of the psalm, two occurrences each of names of the Lord, and each time you'll find that you have first the name Yahweh, and then the name Lord, or Adonai. So in verses 1 and 2, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Yahweh, Adonai, hear my voice. And again in verse 3, if you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Adonai, who could stand? And again in verses 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord, for Yahweh, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope, My soul waits for Adonai more than those who watch for the morning. But then in verses 7, in verse 7, it's Yahweh twice. O Israel, hope in Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is mercy. We're going to look at the psalm under the theme, An Abundant Redemption, and we're going to consider first crying from the depths in verses 1 and 2, then seeking forgiveness in verses 3 and 4, and finally waiting for the Lord in verses 5 to 8. The depths here, uh, that's the first uh, matter we want to look at in the details of the psalm, and what we find there is a word that's uh, used in other psalms, uh, quite frequently actually in other psalms, But in two particular psalms, there's some detail about this. First, in Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. And if you go down then to verse 14 in that same psalm, The word occurs again in that verse, Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me, 
and out of the deep waters. Where it's very clear, of course, that the word depths there is a metaphor for his enemies. And you find the same thing in Psalm 18, verses 16 and 17. Psalm 18, verses 16 and 17. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. So you have again that figure of the depths as a metaphor for his enemies. And I think that's the idea here in Psalm 132 when he cries to the Lord. I, he says, I have cried to you from the depths, that is, from that flood of enemies who are overwhelming me. But in this psalm, it's particularly clear, I think, that he's thinking of these enemies not just as oppressors, but as agents of temptation. They are those who uh, are uh, enticing him to worldly ways by means of their temptations, or they are, by their persecution and oppression, seeking to make him forsake the Lord his God. That's not as clear in Psalm 69 or in Psalm 18 as it is here in this psalm. But there's a relationship um, here then between the enemies who are attacking him, who are overwhelming him in the first part of this psalm, and the uh, forgiveness that he seeks in verses 3 and 4. His enemies are drawing him or seeking to draw him away from God. In fact, it may well be, since he says that he's crying from the depths, that he has been caught in their snare, that he is crying to the Lord his God from the um, position of having fallen into their temptations. You see this, I think, the same relationship between enemies and sin in Psalm 25. Psalm 25 is a psalm about repentance. Three times in that psalm, uh, David prays for forgiveness. Verse 7, do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. Verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And verse 18, look on my affliction and my pain, and forgive all my sin. It's also a psalm about asking the Lord to show him his ways. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me in your past. Lead me in your truth and teach me. But at the beginning and the end of that Psalm 25, you have him crying to the Lord about his enemies. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without a cause. And in the end of the Psalm, consider my enemies, for they are many and they hate me with cruel hatred. The enemies are again thought of in the psalm as agents of temptation and the means of making him fall into sin. That's what we have here, I think. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. My enemies are tempting me and overwhelming me with their floods of ungodliness. The word cried that you find there, you could also translate as called, and I think that what that word called communicates particularly is that he used the name of the Lord to get the Lord's attention, as you would use the name of a friend, for example, if you wanted to get that friend's attention. He 
calls out using the name of the Lord in order to get the Lord's attention. And then he, once he has the Lord's attention, he says to him, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. And you can hear the urgency then of his crying as well in that. Twice he asks the Lord to listen to his words. So, let's move on then to verses 3 and 4. Now, I think that a shift here from verses 1 and 2 to verses 3 and 4 is very interesting. Because in verses 1 and 2, he's coming into the presence of the Lord, calling on the name of the Lord, and asking the Lord to hear him. And now in verse 3, it's almost as if he hesitates. And even draws back a little bit. As he comes into the presence of the Lord, he remembers who this Lord is. And he begins to question, should I really be here? This is that Lord who is holy. This is that Lord who, if he should mark iniquities... None could stand, and I am full of iniquity. I am full of sin. How can I then come into the presence of this Lord? How can I hope for him to hear my prayers and my calling to him? There is a a kind of uh, falling back from the boldness of verses 1 and 2 to a, a kind of a hesitancy or even a kind of uh, fear that now that he is standing in the presence of the Lord, his sins will be marked against him and he will perish there in the presence of the Lord. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And there's in that, of course, also not just the idea that this applies to him personally, but he suddenly recognizes that this is the lot of anyone who might come into the presence of the Lord. Who could stand? Not just me, but who any among men could stand in the presence of the Lord? I'm a great sinner. I'm not worthy to come into the presence of the Lord. But there are many others also who could not stand in his presence. And yet, as he hesitates there on the threshold, as it were, of the house of God. He continues to address the Lord. He doesn't just think to himself, I'm full of iniquity, I cannot stand in the presence of the Lord. He says it to the Lord, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? There is then what uh, we find, I think, here, what we find in one of George Herbert's poems from the 16th century. Love bade me welcome, but my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But immediately also, he finds the answer to his problem. 
in verse 4, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Now, that word uh, forgiveness is a word that's found quite frequently in the law. If you go back, for example, to Leviticus chapters 4 and 5, where God lays out for Israel the regulations concerning the sin offering and the trespass offering, you read numerous times in both of those chapters, the priest shall make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. It's the same word that we have here. And so the psalmist has in mind here as He speaks of this forgiveness that is with the Lord, those bloody sacrifices that were offered at the door, at the entrance of the house of God. And all that picture of atonement that was made there on the altar of burnt offering before the people could come into the presence of God. And so this is uh, as if then, if you can combine this now with verses 1 and 2, as if he's coming into the house of God, he, he hesitates as he's coming into the house of God, he says, this is not a place I'm worthy to enter, and then he sees the altar of burnt offering, and he remembers those sacrifices of atonement, and he says, but there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. Here is my hope, that you will hear my petition, Here is my confidence that I may approach to you. Here is my uh, assurance that I will not be turned away. There is forgiveness with you. And I think the way that he phrases it is also very important here. He says there is forgiveness with you. He doesn't say forgiveness is possible. He doesn't say you are a God who can forgive. He says there is forgiveness with you in in He talks about that forgiveness as if it's already prepared and waiting for him there. God has it there, ready to give to him. And as he draws near, he has only to ask, and it will be given. He comes, therefore, with the confidence of Psalm 103, or his Fear changes to confidence, such as we find in Psalm 103, verse 11, or, or verse 10, rather. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. He's remembering then that sin offering that has been made on his behalf. And we remember, of course, the great sin offering that has been made for us by the one who has offered himself as the sacrifice of atonement for our sins. The God to whom we come, then, is that God whom... uh, whom Psalm 99 describes as the God who forgives. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives. 
though you took vengeance on their deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Now it's also very striking here that he says that there is forgiveness with him that he may be feared. And we have to, I think, in order to understand that, we have to stop and think about it. The the connection between forgiveness and our fear of God is probably not immediately obvious to us. We We might say, there's forgiveness with you that you may be praised. There's forgiveness with you that you may be thanked. There's forgiveness with you that you may be loved. The psalmist talks about fear. There's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Isn't this exactly what he was trying to overcome when he said, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Is it fear? That will be the result of this forgiveness. But that's exactly what the psalm talks about, isn't it? There is forgiveness with you. God forgives so that he may be feared, so that we may tremble in his presence. Tremble at the glory of his majesty. Tremble at him who is holy and who hates sinners. But he forgives. I think there are two things that we should remember then as we think about that word feared here. First, the forgiveness that God uh, has with him and gives to us as we draw near to ask it of him is not like the pardon that a governor may give, for example, to a criminal who has been convicted of a crime and who is suffering the just punishment of his crime in prison, and the governor decides that his sentence was too severe, or the governor uh, 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 considers that in this particular case compassion is is necessary, and he pardons the criminal and releases him from the punishment. What we have to remember in connection with this forgiveness of God is that this forgiveness comes through mighty deeds of salvation, Mighty acts of righteousness and justice. When we talk about this forgiveness, we have to remember that the deeds which bring this forgiveness, which make this forgiveness uh, be established with our God, are deeds similar to the crossing, Israel's crossing of the Red Sea. In fact, deeds greater than Israel's crossing of the Red Sea. Deeds greater than Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan and crossing of the Jordan. Deeds greater than any of those deeds of salvation which God performed for his people in the Old Testament. His deeds of uh, releasing his people also from the land of Egypt. These are those great deeds of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of him humbling himself to become a servant and to perish on the cross. But also those mighty deeds of resurrection from the dead and ascension to the right hand of God. These are the mighty deeds, and these deeds should lead us, of course, 
to fear that God who can do such mighty and glorious things. Behind this forgiveness, then, lies all that mighty work of God which reveals his power and majesty, his righteousness and justice and truth. But also, he forgives so that we may obey. He wants a people that is obedient to him. And that people, that people's obedience begins with fearing him, understanding how great and holy and righteous a God he is. There is forgiveness with you, so that those whom you forgive may fear and obey. And that brings us then to verses 5 to 8. Now, I could have divided these verses too into two parts. There are two parts of these verses are clearly marked. In verses 5 and 6, he talks about himself. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In verses 7 and 8, he addresses Israel. O Israel, hope in the Lord. But there's also a very close connection between these verses, and that close connection is that in both he's talking about hope. In his word, I do hope, verse 5. And in verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. So what we have here is a waiting for the Lord and, and a hoping in the Lord. The psalmist says here then that he is waiting for the Lord. He's waiting for the Lord to answer his cry from verses 1 and 2. He's waiting for the Lord to grant to him the forgiveness that he suddenly knows that he needs in verses 3 and 4. And he's waiting, we might say, passionately. This is not a passive, indifferent kind of waiting here, but it's a passionate waiting. It's a waiting comparable to the waiting of the watchman for the dawn, for the coming of the morning. And if you can imagine the situation of a watchman who's alone on the walls of the city in the darkness of the night, watching for enemies who's very concerned because he knows that enemies are near and that those enemies may well be preparing a surprise attack for the night. That watchman is waiting and looking and longing for the morning when the danger of surprise will be passed and when he will no longer be alone there on the walls of the city watching for the enemies, but there will be many others around to watch with him. He's passionately waiting then and expecting the coming of the dawn. And the psalmist says here, I wait for the Lord like that man waits for the coming of the dawn, like the watchman who watches for the morning. Yes, more than the watchman who watches for the morning. Notice too how he repeats that word wait. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. My soul waits for the Lord. Three times he uses the word. In addition, adding to it the word hope. He's in, in darkness then, waiting for the dawn of grace, for the day spring from on high to visit us. But this waiting is a waiting that is patient, 
He knows that the Lord may not answer him immediately. And so he must wait on the Lord. And because he knows that he must wait for the Lord, wait patiently for the Lord, he's also humble in his waiting. He knows he does not deserve what the Lord, what he asks of the Lord. He has no right in himself to come before the Lord and make such a request. But he also hopes in his word, in the word of his promise, I put my hope, he says. So all his attention then is fixed on the Lord. There is forgiveness with him. Let that forgiveness come to me. There is deliverance with him. Let that deliverance come to me. I wait for him. He also urges Israel then to hope in the Lord. And this comes from his own experience. He finds his comfort and his peace in waiting for the Lord. And he knows then that this will be a good thing for his fellow citizens and the kingdom of God also to do. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy or loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. By that word loving kindness, of course, there is expressed, I think, both the idea of God's love for his people as well as the deeds of kindness that he does for them. That word loving kindness, I think, communicates both of those ideas, his his love and his deeds of kindness. And he speaks also here of redemption. And this is the word in the Old Testament which has to do with the redemption of the firstborn, as you find it, for example, in Exodus 13. It's a redemption, then, that is um, the buying back from the Lord of the firstborn that the Lord has taken for himself, because he killed the firstborn of Egypt in order to deliver his son from Pharaoh. Those firstborn, God said, belong to me. The firstborn of all your children belong to me, and you have to redeem them from me. They had to redeem the firstborn of their animals as well. The firstborn of their oxen and of their sheep were given to the Lord, could not be redeemed, but the firstborn of donkeys and other kinds of unclean animals were redeemed from the Lord. They belong to the Lord. And that's the idea behind that word redemption here. He has redeemed Israel. He says in verse 8, and with him is abundant redemption, that is, with him is the ability to redeem his people just as he redeemed Israel from Egypt of old. With him is the purchasing of his people for himself so that they belong to him, so that he becomes their Lord. And this redemption then is abundant. 
It's redemption, first of all, that is more than sufficient to deliver us from the enemies that are against us and from the sin and death into which we have fallen. And it's abundant because he delivers us into a great and glorious liberty. The ability to serve him again as his purchased possessions, his slaves. But notice again here that he uses the same kind of language he used about forgiveness. There is forgiveness with you, with the Lord there is mercy. With him is abundant redemption. They are there with him again already. And he will give them to those who seek them from him. This is a redemption that no wealth can purchase. That's why I chose to sing Psalm 49. Uh, Psalm 49, which talks about the costliness of our redemption. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. It is a redemption, according to Isaiah 1, verse 27, that is in righteousness. God says there in Isaiah 1, verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. And it is a redemption that gives everlasting joy. So, uh, Isaiah 35, verse 10, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's the redemption that the psalmist is talking about here. With him is abundant redemption. It is a redemption from iniquity and from all the consequences of that iniquity in all of our lives. So what we see here then, people of God, is the psalmist finally concluding with the promise of the Lord. He shall redeem Israel, his chosen people, from all his iniquities. That's his promise. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. That's the doctrine of justification by faith. It's all in him and with him. There's nothing of it in ourselves. It is his loving kindness. It is his righteousness. It is his mighty acts of salvation that have accomplished all this. And we receive it by faith. That is not through anything that we have done. But by trusting in the mighty work of the Lord. By leaving it all in his hands. By saying to him there is 
nothing I can do, nothing I have done. It is all with you and in you. And so we hear the exhortation of the psalmist. The psalmist is in fact applying the lesson of his own life to us in verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is mercy and with him is abundant redemption. May God bless us with his word and give to us the grace of forgiveness.